Today from 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to talk about discerning God's will. Here's the question, what is God's will for your life? To be concerned about that question is a mark of a genuine believer in Christ. Before you were a believer in Christ, you thought nothing of the will of God. You didn't want that. You had little plans, little goals for yourself, and that's what you chased. But then Jesus saved you and you began to follow him. And then it became a big concern of yours. What is he leading me to do? In fact, this is so fundamental to what it is to be a Christian that if you don't have a present desire to follow the will of God, you should question whether or not you're saved. It would be a strange thing indeed to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I just don't want to follow him. That's foreign to the New Testament. Those who know Jesus want to follow Jesus. Why would you not want to follow Jesus, the one who has saved your soul? But we acknowledge that even when you know God's will and you want God's will, it still can be a battle for us to actually follow through. In other words, God can reveal his will to you and you might have fear jump up in your heart. You think, oh, I should want to do that, but I'm afraid. Of course, all of us battle with the continuing sin nature, and so we want to follow the Lord, but we find, oh, there's also temptation not to follow the Lord. Not saying it's easy, but as a believer, don't you have this, that at least you want to want to follow the Lord. In those moments when you're struggling to obey, you're disappointed in your heart now as a child of God. What's wrong with me? I should want to follow the Lord. So Lord, give me that want to want to follow you. So here's the question. How can you know what God's will is? And so we're going to turn to these words here in 1 Corinthians 16. I think a passage that will help us as we try to learn how to discern so that we can follow the will of God. It's a very practical part of 1 Corinthians. And yet we'll learn from Paul how he faced decision-making in his ministry. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9 is our text today. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We see here Paul making some ministry-related travel decisions here in these verses. He's concerned about where he's going to go and when he's going to go there. And as we see him process this, again, some principles for us. The first principle is this. When discerning God's will, remember who you are. When discerning God's will, remember who you are, particularly whose you are. And this takes us really back to chapter 1, verse 1 because that informs everything that we've seen since there, where Paul said this of himself. He said, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was able to immediately tell who he is. He had this clear understanding of himself. In fact, he noticed, notice here how he talks about the will of God here in verse one of chapter one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. In chapter three, he could speak very comfortably there about who he was. In the context there, talking about himself and Apollos, he said, who are we? We're servants of God. He went on to say, we're even fellow workers with God. So Paul very comfortably, very naturally, very easily understood who he was. You and I should be the same way. 
If somebody were to wake you up in the middle of the night and say, who are you? I hope you could come up with your name. You might be in such a deep stupor of sleep, you maybe couldn't do that, but you want to come to, oh, I know who I am, but it's more than your name. I hope you could even come up with, oh, but fundamentally, oh, I'm a child of God. My faith is in Jesus. I'm, I'm a servant of God. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. All those things are true of you if you've genuinely repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And so when you have your identity clear, you know who you are, you know to whom you belong, then decision-making gets clearer in your life. You begin to pray like Jesus, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Knowing who you are clarifies who is to direct your life. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your feelings are no longer your authority. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your friends are no longer your authority. Jesus is the rightful authority in your life. And so here God calls Paul to, to be an apostle. And Paul followed that. If he's an apostle, then he has to be an obedient apostle. Serving Christ has to be the mission of his life. Lordship is settled. In fact, what do we find him doing here in chapter 16? Doing the work of an apostle. He's moving from place to place with the gospel of Jesus Christ, doing what he was told back in his identity when he was called. So as a believer, you too, you're a child of God. If you trusted in Christ, you have become a child of God. You're a servant of God. And a servant wants to follow his master. You are a disciple of Jesus, and a disciple always wants to follow the Lord. And there's no other kind of disciple mentioned anywhere in the Bible. In fact, your Savior said this in Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus continues, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Only one type of disciple. It's a person who wants to actually follow Jesus. And Paul spoke the same way earlier in this very letter. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, perhaps you remember this. The word of God says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. Listen, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So this morning, consider who you are in Christ. You are a child of God. If you're in Christ, a servant of God, a disciple of Jesus who wants to follow Jesus. And you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. I love the words. You are not your own. And this is so helpful, so critical for us as we decide how can, I, how can I know God's will? I need to know that there's somebody other than me in charge of my life from here on. There's no other version of Christianity mentioned in the Bible positively of a person who says, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. He's just not my Lord. Impossible. Scripturally impossible. If he's your Savior, he is your Lord. So what would you do tomorrow if you showed up at work and an imposter was there in the office? Didn't have the lanyard, didn't have the badge, and asserted himself as the new leader of the corporation, what would you do? It'd be strange if your bosses even said, well, that guy showed up. We don't know him, but apparently he's declared himself leader of the company. Everybody do what he says. No, it would never happen. The police would be called if such an imposter came in. Restraining orders would be put in place. So I want to ask this question. Are you that imposter in your own life? Have you asserted yourself as the leader of your own life? That's not your place. 
If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's another Lord and it's Jesus. You're not the leader. You're not the Lord. A long time ago in my life, I fired myself as the leader of my life. In fact, from this very pulpit, a number of years ago, I remember bringing a pink slip in here and I encourage everybody here, fire yourself as the leader of your life. There's a better leader, a rightful leader for your life. In fact, why would we not want to follow him? Jesus, the one who gave his body and blood on the cross for us, was raised and has offered us heaven. Why would we not want to follow a savior like that? Nobody's loved you like Jesus. Nobody is more powerful. Nobody knows more. Of course, he's the rightful leader of our lives. So we're just talking about discerning God's will. Nail down this morning that who, who you belong to, your identity, who you are and whose you are. Secondly, in discerning God's will, remember what God has already told you. Remember who you are, but also remember what God has already told you. And this also informs Paul's life. Again, what did God tell him? Paul said, hey, he called me. He called me by his will to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Do you remember his conversion so dramatically on that Damascus road? After his conversion, God sent a man by the name of Ananias to Paul to minister to him, to speak to him. And this is how that was described in Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knew as he carried out his ministry, this is what God had already told him. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be speaking to Gentiles and everybody else. You're even going to suffer for me. And you see Paul living that out. He knew who he was. He knew what God had already told him. He's driven by that calling, but also he's guided by the scriptures. In fact, God even using him to write much of our New Testament scriptures. So we ask ourselves, when we're thinking about decisions, what has God already told me? What do I already know is his will? I need to act on that first before I figure out whatever the next steps are. And for all of us, we live in the era of having the completed scriptures. God has spoken to us a great deal. And God will never call you to do something that is contrary to what he's already told you in the pages of Scripture. And that's important for you to know. In fact, there's some things you don't even have to ask God because he's already told you. So let me be ridiculous for just a few moments. So if you are lacking financially and, and you were thinking, what am I going to do? You would never then go to God in prayer among the options. Go, well, Lord, I'm struggling financially. Is it your will that I go rob other people? maybe rob some banks this week to make up for the lack in my budget. You'd never do it because God already spoke to you on that. That door's closed. He said, you shall not steal. So you don't need to pray about that. Or what if somebody's rude to you this week? You'll never need to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, can I get revenge? Is it okay to return evil for evil? No, that's a closed door. He's already told you you're not to return evil for evil. Evil Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says Lord. He does that. We, we turn the other cheek. Or how about this one? I'm just being ridiculous. But if, if this week you think, you know, I don't know how fulfilled I am in my marriage. This isn't, this isn't fun anymore. Lord, is it your will that I go find somebody to make me a little happier? Absolutely not. He's already spoke that you are, to, you are to be faithful to your spouse. And you've made vows for better or for worse. We're not going to do that. Listen, God has already spoken. Some doors are already closed. And something he told you, hey, be busy about these things. He's already spoken. So this morning, a great time to affirm your understanding of the word of God in your life, especially as you think about discerning God's will. How about this word? Would you affirm this again in your own heart? The inerrancy of scripture. 
Inerrancy means without error. So when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul and Moses and others throughout the scripture to write, he so superintended that process that what they wrote was exactly as God wanted it. So that when you pick up your Bible, even in your modern translations, that, that you can go from Genesis to Revelation. I have confidence in these inspired words, that, that these words are true. I can build my life on them. But here's another word I want you to hold on to. Not just the slogan of inerrancy, though I hope you have that. But this word, authority of Scripture. It's possible for somebody to go, yeah, I believe the Bible, but not follow it. And that would be craziness. God has loaded you up with his wisdom, with his truth. This is his authoritative word. If it's his word, then that's what we must follow in every area of life. And so would you also affirm that today? That when you take up the Bible, in particular, the new covenant that we're under, Lord, I want to do all of that. In fact, I'm ahead of you. I've been studying this this week, pondering this this week. And I was just asking the Lord in every area of my life, every part of me to be shaped by the scripture. Are you with me in that? In fact, right where you are, why don't you, why don't you affirm this to the Lord? Lord, I, I want to be fully obedient to your word, even in my attitudes. Like, I don't want to just do the right things with a bad attitude. Lord, I want my attitudes to be Christ-like. I want my attitudes to be holy. I want my motivations to be holy. How about this one? My affections. Don't you want to have your affections fully obedient to the Lord? In other words, that you love the things that God loves. Don't you want to have those holy affections and that you abhor what God says he abhors? Lord, I want my affection shaped by your word. How about your speech? It would be crazy today to say, I want God's will in my life, but I don't want him to control my mouth. So, so don't you want your mouth, the, the vocabulary you use, the way you talk to people, don't you want that also surrendered to Christ in biblical? Everywhere you are, the way you talk at home should be holy and righteous. The way you talk at work, the way you talk while you're playing sports, even when you're frustrated, that you want to be holy. You want to be obedient in your mouth. So we talk about God's will, God's will that you would let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And so, Lord, make that true of us. And then, of course, your actions, of course, the whole direction of your life, how you worship him, how you serve him, everything. God has already spoken to us in the scriptures. We want to be surrendered there. So we're just talking about how do we discern God's will? Remember who you are, particularly who you are in Christ. Remember what he's already told you. Don't ignore that. But now we get into the here and now. And this is where we move with Paul's words here. Here's the next principle. Plan humbly acknowledging God's sovereignty. Plan humbly, acknowledging God's sovereignty. Look at verse five again. Paul said, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So Paul here comes up with a reasonable plan. He's considering the needs of the various churches. He's also considering practical things like, like the weather. In that part of the world, at that time, you would not want to travel by ship in the winter. It would be so dangerous and treacherous. So Paul's making his plans. Where, where am I going to be for ministry during the winter? He comes up with a very reasonable plan. But he uses words here that indicate these are plans, not promises. The English Standard Version uses words like this. And in verse 5, he says, I intend to do this. Verse 7, I hope to do this. Verse 6, back there he says, perhaps this is how it's going to go. But verse 7, very clear, he makes these plans. He says, if the Lord permits. 
You ever had your plans changed? Nothing wrong with your plans. You knew what your week was going to be. All of a sudden, it takes on a very different shape. In our household, we had that week this week. So I got a text on Wednesday after the March for Life. I come back and I see a text from my daughter, my youngest, off at college. And she says, I called 911. I'm going to the hospital. I had no context. I knew anything. And uh, sadly, I didn't see that text until after an hour or so, 45 minutes to an hour after she had sent it. So I get on the phone and call my miserable sounding daughter. She indeed's at the ER. She'd been feeling terribly sick and felt very faint. And, and where she was feeling pain in her abdomen, somewhat a concern about appendicitis or something else. And the happy end of the story is after a long day in the ER, uh, testing, nothing scary, um, maybe food poisoning. We, don't, we still don't know what it was. And she's still trying to get better from that. But I can tell you, I wasn't planning to make a trip to Harrisonburg. A Wednesday afternoon and to spend two nights there. Now I'm making it about myself like I'm the sad. Poor Lauren, she's the one that wasn't planning on calling 911 for herself on Wednesday. The, the bigger deal was her deal and feeling so miserable. But just illustrating, we, we make our plans, don't we? But we do it humbly because there's a sovereign God who allows things and is directing the course of our days. And so we're just completely aware of that. In fact, the scholars tell us here that Paul laid out these tentative plans for when he was going to go to Corinth. And it didn't work out this way. In fact, the Corinthians were upset at Paul because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's having to address why his plans changed. They thought this was a lack of integrity on Paul's part because he didn't come like he said he was going to. They thought it was somehow Paul didn't care about them. Here's what one commentator said. He said, various circumstances forced Paul to revise his plans at least twice. His plan B was to visit Corinth, then travel through Macedonia, passing through Corinth a second time on his way to Judea. He talked about that in 2 Corinthians 1. Instead of one long visit, he planned two shorter visits, but even this plan did not materialize. Plan C turned out to be a quick and painful visit to Corinth, after which he returned to Ephesus. He went then to Troas to meet Titus, visited Macedonia, and then went to Judea. The, the commentator goes on to say, he did not spend as much time in Corinth as he had hoped or as much as they expected. And they weren't happy about it. And he has to explain... Now, this was not a lack of integrity. I'm following the Lord here. So the principle, what is the principle? We make our plans. We do our best, but we plan humbly. We're recognizing our limitations and we're recognizing that there's a sovereign God who's ultimately in control. This week, preparing this message, I, I had a video chat with two of our members serving overseas. And I, I won't name them right now because of where they serve, but over the last a uh, little while, they had to relocate from their location due to fighting in their area. So serving the Lord, they have to evacuate. And for the last four months, they've been in, in another country. Here's what they told me. Well, in this other country where they were, they found that there were lost people there. And so they began to engage in gospel work while there. Thankfully, they're now back in their original country and they're re-engaging in the work there. And it was so, fun, so nice to see them and talk to them and hear their peace and their desire to stay right where they are. And I told them, you know, you're living 1 Corinthians 16. I'm about to preach on it. You're living it. Because the plan's changing, though they're back right where they want to be, they know that in a moment they might have to evacuate again and just serve the Lord wherever he puts them. What a great example. So I told them, hey, you're living what I'm preaching. I'm probably going to mention you in the, in the message. And they said, absolutely. I told them I wouldn't give the details, of course, of where they are and all that. But today, be reminded that we make our plans, but God ultimately gets the final say. By the way, can I tell you that you do need to 
ask God in prayer what he wants first. It's never wise to say, Lord, I have my plans. Why don't you bless my plans? That's not how we go about this. Fully surrendered, very humble on the front end. God, would you show me what you want me to do? And I'll still surrender my planning to you because you might still change the way. Well, I love verse seven. That's the whole idea there. If the Lord permits. That's to be our mindset. Indeed, it's a helpful phrase to use. I don't know that we legalistically always have to say those words when we're talking, but helpful to be ringing in the back of your mind. Here's what I think is going to happen if the Lord wills. In fact, Paul spoke this way to these Corinthians back in chapter four, verse 19. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Famously, James taught us to think this way in James 4, 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. More than a phrase, it's a complete and practical awareness of the sovereignty of God. We're saying when we say, if the Lord wills, we're saying, I intend to do this, but God gets the final say. Warren Wiersbe said it well, so, so what do we do with this? He said, there are two extremes we must avoid in this important matter of seeking God's will. One is to be so frightened of making a mistake that we make no decisions at all. The other is to make an impulsive decision and rush ahead without taking time to wait on the Lord. After we've done all that we can to determine the leading of the Lord, we must decide and act and leave the rest to the Lord. If we are in some way out of his will, he will so work that we will finally have his guidance. The important thing is that we sincerely want to do his will. After all, he guides us for his namesake and it's his reputation that's at stake. I think that's a good word. So we're just talking about how do we discern God's will, know who you are, know what he's already told you, plan humbly, acknowledging the sovereignty of God, and then this, plan courageously, expecting both opportunities and opposition. Plan courageously, expecting both opportunities and opposition. Notice verse 9. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. As we follow the Lord, we can expect both open doors and opponents, open doors and adversaries. Opposition does not necessarily mean you're outside of the will of God. Right in the center of God's will, we see that Paul faced opposition. Sometimes he faced opposition from within the churches that he started, like the church at Corinth. False teachers infiltrated, they stirred up antagonism against him, and so he's dealing with opponents almost everywhere he went, sometimes within the churches. Certainly from outside the churches, unbelievers would be quite angry at his ministry. In Ephesus, that he references here, he saw great fruit there as he shared the gospel, oh, but also great danger there. He even spoke about facing beasts earlier in this letter in Ephesus. So believer, here's an important moment for us to adjust our expectations. So what's it going to look like if I'm right in the center of God's will and I'm following him step by step? What will that mean for me? Well, expect there'll be opportunities. There'll be open doors for you to serve the Lord. But at the same time, there will be adversaries. There will be opponents. And you and I need to embrace both of those realities in our service to the Lord. 
In fact, those in spiritual leadership need to move in both directions. Certainly, when God gives an open door for ministry, we want to step toward that opportunity. But also, when there's opposition, many times as leaders, we need to step toward the opposition. We don't always flee from that. Isn't this what a shepherd does? We think about first century shepherds. We can think, well, that seems like a nice job. Now, they tell us quite dirty job, very hard job. But we could have an idealized version of it. Oh, you get to care for fluffy sheep. And you take care of them and you sell them and you make a lot of money. What a nice job. But a, but a shepherd would know, well, there's that part of it, which is much more difficult than I made it sound. But then they're predators. And that's a big part of the job. You're stepping toward wolves to defend the flock. You're stepping toward bears and other predators. There's, there's danger in the midst of it. It's just part of the job. There are opportunities from it, but there are also opponents there. I think about our police officers, and we have several in our church who serve as police officers. We're grateful for you. And Wednesday nights, we pray for you, our, our police officers. And they've been trained when they hear the sounds of danger, whatever they are, they move toward the danger. They don't run along with the rest of us in the other direction. They, they head toward it. And likewise, in ministry, there are open doors that we run toward, but also we don't always run away from the adversaries. Here's what Paul said. Look at it again. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries, Paul said, and I'm staying right there as part of my mission to address that. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, he says something similar. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So what do we do in evil days? We might be tempted. Well, let me just hide. Let me lay low to a more opportune, peaceful time. But no, no, we make the most of the time because the days are evil. So challenge and conflict does not always mean a closed door for you. We see examples in the Old Testament. Remember when God gave his people the promised land? They had to go in and fight from city to city. There was opportunity, but there was opposition in all of that. Or how about when Nehemiah led the people back to build the walls of Jerusalem after the exile? They had an opportunity but there were constant opponents. They had tools for building and tools to fight should that become necessary. And in the new covenant, are there opportunities and opposition? Of course. We see it in our Savior Jesus, always had adversaries, eventually him on a cross. The apostles early on in the book of Acts, we see them arrested repeatedly. And Paul faced trouble in every city as we've seen. And so we could say it this way, God is at work, but the enemy is also at work. And we keep pressing forward in the will of God. So think about these ones sent out from our church. What kind of context is theirs? It's very much this. We talked about these that I mentioned. I won't give their names, uh, but we think about all those serving from our church. And every place they are, opportunities, but also adversaries, but they keep pressing on. By the way, it's not just if you serve overseas, you might expect to face some opposition. When I was training for ministry years ago, my mentors in ministry preparing you for U.S. ministry, just let you know uh, there will be people opposing even the good things that you want to do. In fact, they alerted me to this saying, and the saying is this. Somebody might come to you one day opposing you, and they're going to say, people are saying. There's a G on them that people are saying. I'm enunciating very carefully now because at 8 o'clock, they thought I said, people are Satan. I didn't say that. My mentors didn't teach me that. And uh, another person said, no, it sounded like you said, people are sane. Well, sane is a good thing instead of insane. So I thought, let me enunciate at 9.30 and 11. So, but my mentors told me, yeah, in ministry, you might come into this phrase, somebody else is going to pose you and they're going to say people. They're going to invoke people. And sure enough, 
I was a 25-year-old serving as a pastor in another location at another time. I'm getting ready to preach the 11 o'clock service, and an older gentleman comes into my office. I, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, have a seat. He said, people are saying, I know, I knew this was coming one day. People are saying, you're trying to make this into a city church. And I said, oh, goodness, I would never do that. Can you tell me why people are saying that? He said, because you're wanting to show a movie in the church house. I said, oh, no, it's, it's the Jesus film. I, I mean, it's the missionaries you're using it all over the world. At that time, it had already been translated into 300 languages, many more by now. I said, it's virtually verse, it's, it's word for word from the gospel of Luke. And I want to show it here on Easter Sunday night for an outreach. And, uh, and then, he, then he said this, before I go up to preach, now he says this, I just don't want you to have a church split on your record. Those are inflammatory words. Well, I kept cool and God gave me grace in the moment. You know, gentle answer turns away wrath, all that. But I had to go preach. I got to tell you, it was surreal trying to preach. Like how many of these people are mad? I mean, people. Turns out, I think he was the people. <laughs> because the church was packed Easter Sunday night. And nobody was mad. We had decisions made for Christ. And there was no, there was no hint of a split over showing the Jesus film in a church. But what you learn is there'll be opponents. Sometimes you'll have adversaries in local church life and they don't mean any harm. It's just a difference of opinion. And it's okay to dialogue about, I would prefer it to be this way. That, that's, not, that's not a real adversary. But sometimes you'll bump into a person who's a real opponent. Maybe they, maybe they don't know Christ, but they have church tradition. Maybe they're a guardian of those traditions without a heart for Jesus. Maybe they're guarding their own power and influence that they used to have. Maybe they're guarding their own preferences. They're maybe opposing any kind of spiritual leadership, but, but a pastor and a church leader, a deacon, you don't run from that. There's a wide door for effective service. There are many adversaries and part of shepherding is, well, we'll deal with that while we keep moving forward. Again, praise God, we're not dealing with those issues here. For, for you who people are visiting, that's not, a, <laughs> that's not shooting a message across the bow to anybody. There's much, much love and harmony here. All right, a final word of encouragement for us. What does God do with many of his adversaries? He makes many of his adversaries into his children. And I love this because here's Paul saying, the wide door for effective service. There are many adversaries. What was Paul at one time? He was one of the worst adversaries to the kingdom of God ever. And here's Paul now serving the Lord. Isn't it good news that as we don't run from opposition, we keep joyfully, peacefully proclaiming the gospel with courage uh, many of those who oppose may indeed, in fact, put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul experienced that. The cities he would go to. In fact, you, you probably encounter this. When you're sharing the good news, the first person's impulse may not be to believe. But as you pray, as you continue to persist in your godly example and proclaiming the gospel, some of those who initially are opposed, God can bring them into his family. Oh, that should give us great courage. A wide door for effective service. And of course, there will be many adversaries, but that doesn't change the mission. Well, we've been talking about the will of God. Can I tell you one thing I'm confident of? If you're here in this place or if you're watching the live stream, I believe God is working on you that you would follow Jesus. It is God's will that you no longer follow the path you've been on away from Jesus. But today, would you humble yourself and put your faith in Jesus? Your, your first response to me, well, why would I need to do that? Because Jesus loves you that Jesus died for your sins on a cross. He was then raised from the dead. Who else would you rather follow than the one who died for your sins, was raised from the dead? And he's offering that if you believe in him, you will not perish at the judgment, 
but you'll have instead everlasting life. Would you trust in Jesus? That is God's will for you. I pray that you'll do that. Trust in him even now. You can ask him right where you are, and then you'll pledge yourself, Lord, now I just want to follow you. I want to follow you the rest of my life. In every single facet of my life, I want to follow you. There's that old hymn of the faith. In fact, we sang it at eight o'clock across the way. It's the song, wherever he leads, I'll go. I hope this is your heart today. Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And one of the other verses says this. He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know. And in that will, I now abide. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Let's pray together. Lord, that's what we want. To be completely yielded, completely surrendered to you in everything in our lives. Lord, yes, in the big decisions, but Lord, in every single smaller thing, we want to be obedient. Like, like we prayed earlier, like we mentioned, Lord, would you be the Lord over our attitudes? Make us Christ-like in our attitudes. Make us Christ-like, Lord, in our affections. Lord, in our speech, may we be obedient and holy in our speech, like your word calls us to as disciples. In our actions, in our service, in our worship, in the trajectory and direction of our lives, Lord, all under your leadership. So, Lord, make that true of each one of us, and in particular, those who need to be saved from their sins. Lord, would you call them to faith today? May they respond to this good news with repentance and faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.